downloading Ethical Theory Review. Today's book is Grief, a Philosophic Guide, which is just out with Princeton University Press. The author is Michael Cholby. Michael is currently the Chair of Philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. His previous books are Understanding Kant's Ethics and Suicide of Philosophic, Philosophic Dimensions, which was named a Choice Outstanding Academic Title. And Michael, in your book on grief, you go over the nature of grief, including its formal object, and you discuss then the evaluation of grief, rational evaluation of grief, the prudential questions about is grief, could it be beneficial or is it always harmful? And then moral questions about whether we ought to grieve. And in the last chapter, you discuss questions about the medicalization of grief. So we're not going to be able to probably cover all that, but I thought we'd start out with questions about the nature of grief. And mm -hmm. so just to give uh, sort of my summary as foreshadowing for listeners that at the end, you point out grief can seem sort of a disunified phenomenon. And you emphasize this in chapter two. It can involve things like feeling angry. It can seem to come and go, but it's still around. And in the end, I'd say your view is roughly that grief is a process and uh, an orientation and its object that it responds to is a seriously changed, permanently changed relationship that is important and connected to your practical identity. And so to, before we sort of dig into all that, I thought we could start out in the first chapter, you push back against what I took to be a natural starting point for me on grief, which was grief could seem like it's a sort of a wounded attachment. And the idea there would be you have attachments or maybe love for certain people. And you might think grief is just the other side of that. So when you lose someone that you love and you have that special kind of attachment to, that's that's what grief is. It's the, it's the wounded attachment that's lingering around after that. And so in that first chapter, you raise some interesting objections to that. So I thought we could start there. Sure. So I think that everything you just said is, is certainly faithful to the overall contours of the book. Uh, one of the things I think is worth keeping in mind about grief is that it is a diverse phenomenon on a lot of different dimensions. So uh, as you were mentioning, you know, there are grief episodes that contain emotions that might seem perhaps unexpected or surprising, you know, anger, anxiety, uh, joyfulness in some cases, in addition to what I think we tend to suppose is like the emotional heart of grief, which is something like sadness or sorrow, right? Um, so, you know, emotional episodes, uh, sorry, grief episodes have a lot of dish a different emotional ingredients. Different people will grieve different deaths differently. We grieve the death of, say, you know, someone that we've been married to for decades, uh, very differently from, you know, the grief we experience when we learn that, I don't know, uh, our favorite pop star has died or something like that. So one of the challenges I think philosophers face, and of course, this is a very philosophical project, you know, is to try to find the common thread, right, through all of these different um, uh, types of grief episodes and the emotions that we undertake. And I think it's important that, um, I certainly don't want to deny, right, that a lot of instances of grief conform to the pattern that you were describing where, you know, we're emotionally attached to someone and uh, their death causes a sort of um, a crisis, I guess you could say, an attachment. I mean, I don't know uh, to what extent your readers will be familiar with the work of uh, Monique Wonderly, who's written a couple of really nice articles from a philosophical perspective on the nature of attachment. But attachment is certainly the sort of thing where 
you know, if you lose somebody to whom you're attached, it would be understandable that it would cause a uh, emotionally vexatious, you know, event, you know, a very intense kind of grief. So I don't want to, of course, uh, deny that that is a sort of grief, but I think that when we widen our lens out, what we see is that we grieve people to whom we aren't attached, uh, people to whom, uh, you know, our emotional relationship is one perhaps that's more fraught, where we're not quite as dependent upon them. Uh, so consider, um, you know, uh, parents grieving the deaths of children. Uh, parents aren't attached to their children in the standard sense, right? Uh, they don't get usually security from the presence of their children. We're not dependent on our children the way they're dependent on us. And of course, we can also grieve people with whom our uh, relationship is uh, somewhat more mm, antagonistic, right? And we can grieve, you know, rivals. Uh, you know, it's said that Castro grieved the death of Kennedy. Uh, and so those sorts of examples, I think, suggest that grief can involve uh, or often does involve uh, you know, a relationship that isn't defined by attachment, though, of course, I definitely mean for my uh, account to make sense of, of that sort of paradigmatic type of case, too. Okay, yeah, thanks. And that's you. another one you mentioned, in addition to grown children, also infants or um, someone who has a miscarriage. So I thought right. that's kind of, I, I was very convinced by that, in addition to these cases of, right, people you aren't really related to in a substantive way, like a pop star. So as an alternative to saying grief is a response to people uh, in the relationship of attachment, you propose relationships that are related to your practical identity. So I thought maybe you could say a little bit about what it is practical identity. It's a, it's a relatively technical term. So something about yeah. what that is and roots. Yeah. Sure. So I'm borrowing that uh, with some modifications from uh, the philosopher, Christine Korsgaard, who I think put this forth, uh, first in, in her book, The Source of Normativity. But I take it that practical identity is something like a self-conception that provides us reasons for doing what we do in an ongoing way, right, throughout our life, you know, our projects and commitments. So uh, there are certain reasons we have for doing things that I wouldn't think of as rooted in our practical identity. I'm enjoying a cup of tea right now. Uh, I'm doing that because uh, it's a little chilly here and I was a little thirsty. Uh, I think I had good reason to do that, but I'm not, you know, it's not part of my practical identity to be a tea drinker or anything like that. God forbid I'm an American, not a Brit. So, uh, <laughs> um, but there are certain reasons that we have for doing what we do that I think are rooted in practical identity. So, you know, I'm preparing my my courses for the next term. And I and as I uh, undertake the, that enterprise, I think I'm definitely thinking, you know, I'm, I'm a professional philosopher. There are certain standards and expectations that my courses should meet and certain experiences my students should have, right? And that's a reflection of, you know, an ongoing commitment or project that I have. But practical identities, of course, for social creatures like ourselves, uh, implicate other people. Right. So a lot of the projects and commitments that I have are dependent upon the existence of other people. I mean, the one I just mentioned, of course, is dependent upon the existence of my students. Um, but there are others, right, that are dependent upon the existence of people in a much more uh, substantial or significant sort of way. You can't be, of course, married without a partner. You can't have, you know, be a parent without a child. You can't be, uh, you know, a, a business co-owner without a business partner. Uh, you can't be a fan of the Beatles without the Beatles. You know? So in all of these cases, uh, our practical identities and uh, the reasons we have uh, in light of those practical identities depend upon the existence of others. And my suggestion then in my account of the nature of grief is that that's the sort of necessary condition that makes sense of grieving, 
right? That certain people have become in a way essential to our understanding of ourselves and essential to the kind of big reasons on, on our landscape, right? The sort of things that get us out of bed in the morning and kind of motivate, you know, our, our large scale, you know, projects across time. And I think that, again, going back to the, the conversation we were having earlier about sort of the diversity of grief experiences, I think this is, this is an account, the practical identity account, that's the right size. I think it helps make sense of how, on the one hand, we do grieve the deaths of spouses and children and, and those with whom we're intimate, but we also uh, grieve the deaths of political leaders uh, that we're not intimate with, but perhaps, you know, have been part of our lives in the sense that, you know, we voted for them or we believe in their political projects or you know, a mentor, a professional mentor, say, that has shaped us. But also, you, know, you mentioned this example, um, you know, a miscarried fetus, right? A miscarried fetus is someone in whom parents have often invested their practical identity. Certain hopes and aspirations uh, for their lives have become uh, attached, right, to uh, this unborn uh, child. And so when the child dies, it's natural and understandable, I think, to view that as a kind of uh, diminishment or uh, a kind of undermining, right, of their practical identity. And, and my view then is that that's in some sense what we're grieving for, right, is the loss of the relationship in which uh, uh, or that has been embedded within our practical identity. Yeah, that's so that leads to the next thing, uh, you know, in your second chapter and this. So you make the case for the practical identity uh, as a way of picking out the right relationships. And so you, then I, the nat one natural next thought you might have would be, okay, the people I grieve for are people that are related to me because they're connected to my practical identity in some way. But now what do I grieve when they're gone? You might think, oh, I grieve, grieve either the harms that befell that person or, you know, their debates about whether death is a harm, but you might be grieving the fact that they died or you might be grieving the harms you're suffering by them not being around anymore. And so you could think the practical identity picks out the right relationships, but then when you grieve, the thing you grieve are really these harms, either to you or the person who's no longer around. And so I thought, so I was kind of surprised then at first when that, that you actually push back against that and you, and you push for what you just said instead, that what you're, the, the, the formal object of grief is the change relationship. So maybe if you could say a little bit about how you came to yeah. uh, disagree with that harm account and, and the objections to it. So uh, I think uh, savvy listeners to this podcast will know that there is a robust and ongoing debate among philosophers as to how we should understand the notion of harm. And so I, I tended uh, in this book and in general in my work on grief to uh, not want to wade too deeply into that dispute. So I want to say that the object of grief is the loss of the relationship that we had with the deceased, again, on the supposition that the deceased person is someone in whom we've invested our practical identity. So um, as I understand it, sort of the, the loss to which grief is responsive is the loss of that relationship as it was, though not necessarily the loss of the relationship in its entirety. One of the things I, I try to emphasize is I think most people when they're grieving don't think of themselves as attempting to bring their relationship with the deceased to a close. It's not the, uh, the end, right, of their relationship with the deceased. In many cases, it's simply a transition, admittedly an arduous or difficult one, but a transition between one stage of one's relationship with the deceased and a subsequent, if you will, sort of post-mortem, right, uh, stage of that relationship. 
Now, in terms of the sort of specific harms that people suffer from the deaths of others, it would be foolish, right, to deny that we don't suffer harms uh, of a particular kind, right, from other people's deaths. And I, of course, don't want to say that that's not one of the things that we are uh, undergoing, right, in the course of our grieving. But I think we're left then with grief as a sort of uh, endeavor in which we try to make sense of, right, uh, the value that we have lost, including the harms, because of course, you know, uh, in lots of our relationships, we uh, uh, in which we're practically uh, in which our identities are, are, are invested, these are relationships that um, uh, we benefit from, right? They're the relationships that are good for us, and so we do lose out on various sorts of things. And if you want to call that a harm, then you know, I have no sort of philosophical objection to our calling it that. But I don't think that's, if you will, sort of the heart of grief, in part because I think other people's deaths are sometimes benefits to us right, all things considered. And um, yet it still makes sense, I think, to grieve, right? So, you know, the little uh, small amount of work that has been done on um, the grief that people undergo uh, when, say, a spouse or a parent uh, opts for assisted dying, right, seems to show that in many cases, the people in question grieve those deaths, but at many times they see the deaths as benefits both to the deceased and to themselves, right? They they sort of, you know, bring to an end a, a sort of painful end of life uh, chapter, right? Uh, both for the deceased and for themselves. So for them, at least, uh, you know, the death is under those circumstances is in a substantive way, perhaps a benefit, difficult though that may be to, to say. So um, again, you know, all kinds of harms that people suffer from the deaths of others. And I think that's very near the heart of grief, but not at the heart of grief. Okay, that's yeah, that's helpful. Because um, I yeah, I was also thinking you, in the book you mostly focus on, or I guess solely focus on uh, grief responding to death. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking, uh, you know, clearly your account, uh, and I might bring up a little more about this later. You could expand it. In one case, I'm thinking is if someone uh, moves away, or you know, if someone blasted off for Mars that was in a you know someone <laughs> important to your practical identity, and you never saw them again. Yeah, and they weren't dead. Uh, but you might grieve their absence. And so I was, and so I would think that would kind of fit your idea that the formal object in that case might be the same as if someone dies, this this rupture in the relationship or change relationship. Sure. Um, so so is, do you think that's right that that would sort of fit in with your approach? I think so. Um, I wanted in the end to thread a needle, right, in thinking about grief. On the one hand, Right. Grief seems to be fairly similar for just the reasons that you are articulating to other kinds of trauma, right, to certain kinds of alterations uh, that people undergo when other kinds of relationships change. So, you know, it seems to me not too much of a stretch, right, to say that people grieve when they divorce or they grieve when they, uh, you know, uh, uh, break a long employment relationship with a certain, you know, workplace or something like that. Um, I do think there are nevertheless distinctive features of the grief that we undergo when others die insofar as uh, its reaction to something that is truly permanent, right? You know, others' deaths aren't reversible. And I think also um, it shakes us a bit more to our sort of ethical core, right? Because one thing that that underscores to us, or I think subtly reminds us of, is that, you know, their deaths remind us that we will die someday and all of the things that we care about are in that sense uh, you know, tenuous and vulnerable and precarious. So um, I wanted to situate grief as uh, one among many different sorts of, of traumas 
and to sort of emphasize that that my concern for the grief we feel at the deaths of others um, arises from sensing that it is nevertheless a distinctive, right, uh, uh, has a distinctive sort of profile, I guess, among grief-like experiences. But I'm happy to acknowledge, you know, yeah, anytime a relationship uh, uh, is permanently altered in a profound way, that might well be uh, grounds or a rationale for grieving. Okay. That, and that, this, the thing you said about one aspect of when someone dies and you're grieving, that that sort of shakes, shakes you to your core and, and, and might lead you to reevaluate things. That gets into some of your views on the value of grief. And so, again, to report, I guess initially when I just thought a little bit about this before reading your book, I thought of grief as a sort of bought into the wounded attachment cases where you've loved someone, you've lost them. And you might think of grief as sort of uh, an unfortunate, not very pleasant state uh, and series of processes, a struggle you go through that you're, it's a natural thing that you need to endure. It's going to lead to bad results if you fight it or repress it. But it doesn't seem like uh, a particularly valuable or good thing to grieve uh, for, for your own, for my own sake, uh, say, mm -hmm. if I was grieving. So there are other questions we can talk about later. Maybe you might think you owe it to someone else to grieve or something might have more importance. But in terms of personal good, it doesn't seem a benefit. But one of the striking things about your account in the book is that you argue grief does have a kind of value for us that's connected to self-knowledge. Mm -hmm. So I thought maybe that, that that could be the next thing we could hear about your view on that. Sure, definitely. So to be clear, I don't want to suggest that you know, grief is the sort of thing that we should hope to have as, as often as possible in our lives or something like that, right? I mean, it's a response, obviously, in most cases, to something that we would think is, is bad, right? For just some of the reasons we were articulating a moment ago. We, we lose people who matter to us in various sorts of ways. Um, and that, of course, you know, uh, is understandably a source of suffering, though I would invite people to ask themselves whether they would think it'd be a good thing if uh, those uh, in whom we've invested our practical identities could never die. I think that would be sort of a, a raise a set of predicaments of its own. Um, but in any case, uh, the thought that, uh, you know, grief is, is natural is certainly something that I concur with. But, you know, the sort of thought that you sort of have to endure it and it would be bad to to sort of suppress it or avoid it or something like that, I think then raises the question, well, why, right? I mean, why not just, you know, uh, avoid it entirely, right? You know, why not go to, to every length imaginable, you know, not to grieve? Um, so I think we have the sense, you know, deep in, a, in our, our sort of intuitive, uh, you know, grasp of this, that there's something important about doing this, that we would be depriving ourselves of an important life experience if we... Uh, you know, manage to avoid this altogether. You know, one example that I that I often use in, in my work is the example of uh, Merceau, the protagonist of uh, of Camus' uh, uh, novella *The Stranger*, who, you know, is an individual who can't grieve, or it's a little hard to tell whether he can't grieve or whether he sort of suppresses it. But in any case, you know, when I read it, uh, you know this tale, which sort of begins and ends in a way with grief. Uh, or, or its absence, I don't look at, at Merceau and think, wow, lucky bastard, right? He, <laughs> he, he doesn't grieve, right? I think, wow, how pitiful, right? You know, there's something deeply lacking in his, in his, uh, in his outlook on the world and in his ethical orientation in the world. So that just raises the question, what's good about grief? Particularly given that, as you say, it's emotionally uh, fraught, right? Packed with all sorts of negative affects, sadness and, and guilt and, and worry and uh, anxiety. 
So what I end up saying is that I think grief is an opportunity for a certain kind of self-knowledge or self-understanding. So going back again to, to some earlier comments about the nature of grief, so another person in whom we've invested our practical identity dies. What does this mean? Well, our relationship with them uh, cannot continue. And to the extent that uh, our practical identities were invested uh, in them being alive, our lives can't continue in the same way. There's a whole bunch of stuff that you can't do anymore, right? You know, you can't uh, listen to David Bowie's, uh, you know, or go to David Bowie's live concert. I suppose you can listen to the recordings, but no more concerts. Uh, you know, you can't uh, anticipate the next uh, you know, addressed by, by Desmond Tutu, who, who we lost just in the last several weeks. You can't, you know, go for a stroll with, with your husband. You can't uh, call your brother on the phone to, to talk about, you know, this week's football matches or whatever. So um, we, we lose these opportunities, these possibilities for our lives when these other individuals die. But one of the things that this does is it sort of discloses to us um, the importance of serving our projects, right? We sort of realize, oh, goodness, I didn't realize uh, perhaps how deeply invested I was in, you know, that weekly call or, you know, the next uh, Desmond Tutu address or the next David Bowie concert or uh, whatever it might be. And um, it's a kind of ethical wake-up call, right? A kind of evaluative wake-up call when we grieve and it invites us, I think, to re-examine or reconsider, right? Um, the uh, nature of our projects and commitments because they're not going to be able to continue, continue in quite the same way, right? It's a kind of disruption, right, in our uh, practical identity. And uh, I think that it provides us a whole array of information um, of an emotional sort, right, of an affective sort about what we care about, right? I mean, the person who's grieving the death of a spouse that they were married to for, for decades is um, being informed, right, or being given evidence about the significance of that relationship in different ways, right? What kind of relationship it was, uh, you know, the meaning of it. And they're, they're gaining a kind of practical self-knowledge that I hope uh, will allow them to um, incorporate, right, the death of, of the deceased into their practical identity and then advance forward in their lives uh, with a revised understanding of their own values and commitments in light of that. So in a way, I think of grief as a kind of tool for allowing us to say up to date, right, in our relationships with others, right? In its absence, I think we would struggle to um, live in a way, right, that reflects the reality of the relationships that we have with the world uh, and the possibilities that those relationships afford us for pursuing what we care about. That's, yeah, so, I mean, so it's one thing I'm noticing there, so because you, you were talking about, we might become more aware of these projects, and so obviously th those would be connected in some way to our practical identities. Mm -hmm. So. One question I had about the notion of practical identities is if you're reading Korsgaard, for example, and some other maybe existentialists, there's an emphasis on a volitionist sort of picture of practical identity where we could rationally revise our practical identity or decide to drop them or not. And I'm wondering, do you think that, do you, do you endorse a volitionist view? And Because I, I guess my thought was, the more I thought about what you were saying about grief could make me aware of my practical identity, I was thinking one lesson someone might take from grieving would be that a sort of anti-volitionist view that it's naive or uh, it's not plausible for us to think that our practical identities are really under our volitional control. So I'm just curious what your view on that about practical identity is in, in, in relation to grief. Yeah, that's a really philosophically robust question. Um, I guess uh, were I to think through uh, uh, a, 
what my view on that would seem to be in light of what I say about grief. Uh, I think I agree with you that I don't think practical identities are entirely chosen. But on the other hand, I think I agree with Korsgaard and her ilk that they are always open to rational appraisal, right? We can always sort of take a look at them and say to ourselves, you know, how do we want our lives to continue? Uh, is it really important that we be uh, Presbyterians and, uh, you know, married to Joanne and, you know, working down at the, at the, at the plant, et cetera, right? Are these really sort of important uh, commitments that we want to maintain? Do we feel that we have good reasons to maintain them? I think we very often stumble into right, uh, various elements or ingredients of our practical identity. We don't sort of choose them uh, in, 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 also in, all, in, in so robust a sense. Um, I suppose, uh, you know, some of them are chosen. Some of our relationships have a volitional component. You know, if, if marriage is, is a, a chosen uh, commitment for you, then, you know, there's a sense in which that's a, a chosen dimension of your practical identity. But I suppose a lot of times, others of them, they just kind of show up. You know, friendship often, uh, you know, um, uh, just sort of shows up at our door. And, you know, professional relationships are, are such that we don't necessarily choose them exactly. They seem rather to kind of grow organically and, and, and you know, they're, they're just there. So um, I think that's, perhaps to say the right answer to that question from, from my perspective would uh, be predicated upon whether you see the relationships, right, that are essential to our practical identities as, as chosen or not. And I guess the answer is sometimes, but often not. But the crucial thing is that when uh, those in whom our practical identities are invested die, then the relationship has to undergo some sort of modification, some sort of transformation, right? And so in a way, it sort of opens, you know, to use Korsgaard's language, the normative question, right, about the significance of the relationship, right? Uh, what did it mean? And what do you want it to mean from here on, you know? Uh, if, if you and your brother were, uh, you know, uh, refurbishing an old wooden canoe and then your brother dies, you know, it's an interesting question. Uh, should you continue? Right? Was it was it was it your project? That is to say, one you shared with him, such that you can't imagine continuing it. Uh, you know, maybe you even think that finishing it would would sort of be, uh, I don't know, a failure to recognize the nature of your loss or or the fact of his death. Or maybe you think alternatively, well, you know, the relationship is continuing. It was an important project. Uh, you know, uh, we were we were nearly finished, and you know, I'm going to finish it, and it's an indication of the value significance of of that relationship. Or maybe you bring in somebody else to, to help you finish that project, right? So those are the kinds of choices, and I think that that are indicative of, as I was saying, how um, grief uh, tracks, right, a moment, right, within our relationships where I think the, the the our practical identities are opened for scrutiny and reconsideration. Okay. Yeah. Um. Well, that so one thing I thought I'd bring up now is really early in the book, I think you uh, quite nicely at the very beginning bring up how grief is a sort of neglected topic. You could probably say the same thing. I think I think we're in a little bit of a renaissance of moral psychology now where there, we see a, there hasn't been really sustained attention, you know, and people, there are books out on envy and other things. So I think there's a, it's an exciting time. And that's one thing I liked about your book. But it's true also that grief in particular comes in for sort of criticism or there, there seems to be a thrust in certain parts of the philosophic tradition, East and West, where <laughs> philosophers argue we'd be better off without grief or maybe it's best to not grieve too long. So, so philosophers, there's a, not everybody, but there's sort of an absence of discussion of it and then people are sort of down on it. 
And so one thought I had was on your discussion of the self-knowledge that we can gain from grief, I'm trying to open up a discussion of what you would say in response to say Stoics or Taoists or Buddhists. And one thought I, I had is they might think a lot of them encourage practices of meditation or reflection on death, on mortality, on the structure of your life. And so if someone were to be engaged in those practices and were to be approaching being a Stoic sage or a Buddhist sage or a Taoist sage, and then they didn't exhibit, they didn't grieve. One, one thing they might say would be, well, they already have the type of self-knowledge that you're saying the rest of us, uh, non-sagely mortals, could gain from grief. And I, so I wondered what you thought about that as a way of maybe seeing why they would oppose grief and just, or do you think there really is some kind of self-knowledge that, that that doesn't look very like a plausible option for most of us anyway? Well, I guess I would just say that um, I part ways with uh, Stoicism, Taoism, and others, I think, on a lot of really fundamental questions. And I think one of the uh, questions with which I part ways with views like those is simply the place of relationships, interpersonal relationships in particular, you know, in the human condition, and uh, the dispensability of those relationships uh, to, to human thriving or to human flourishing. Um, I think, you know, Stoics, Taoists, and so forth recognize that, you know, people will have uh, interpersonal relationships no matter what, but there's a sort of picture of those relationships that I find um, somewhat alien and, and, and quite alarming in certain respects, right? That they are, um, uh, perhaps unfortunate byproducts of the fact that we aren't wholly self-sufficient beings that could live virtuous lives, uh, you know, in the absence of others. Um, so I think we start out from very different, uh, you know, philosophical beginnings, uh, I and the Stoics and the Taoists on the other hand, um, where I think that um, <clears throat> flourishing human lives are deeply enmeshed, right, in human relationships, such that we have good reason to want right, um, our practical identities to be dependent upon these interpersonal relationships, whereas I think the Stoics and the Taoists will acknowledge that only very grudgingly, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, you got to have somebody to talk to, so I guess friends are nice, and, you know, you might want to have somebody to inherit your property, so I guess marriage and children, that, that's, that's okay, but there's a kind of uh, uh, second, uh, those sorts of goods are, are viewed, I think, as sort of second rate on their point, uh, from their point of view, and that's not my point of view. So, um, and in a, I, I sense, in a, you know, in a way, you know, when when you couch the, the issue in terms of self knowledge, I suppose that that the sage or or, or uh, uh, the person of of, of enlightenment uh, has knowledge of a certain, you know, uh, a certain sort of self knowledge, right? Kind of knowledge of of their own nature, but I don't think knowledge of themselves as a particular agent acting in the world, right? Because in some ways, that's the kind of knowledge that you know they again acknowledge its value only reluctantly, or you know, it's just sort of something that we have to know, but it's not really the heart of living virtuously. Um, you know, as I begin my book, I point out that I think one of the reasons why a lot of philosophical schools historically have been somewhat antagonistic to grief is because uh, the fact that we grieve is an indication that uh, it's very difficult, maybe impossible for us to attain this kind of self-sufficiency or lack of dependence upon others that these traditions venerate. I take that to show rather that 
you know, they've got a mistaken, uh, you know, sort of ethical worldview that uh, that's because we're not beings like that, right? We are much more uh, um, deeply social, right, than those traditions tend to suppose. So that's to say maybe that I ally myself more closely with, uh, I suppose, uh, the best figure there would be someone like Aristotle, right? You know, sort of seeing seeing ourselves as an interesting way, you know, constituted by these relationships. They're not just sort of dispensable or uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of resources that we need uh, sort of in order to live in the world, but not part of the human good. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And I think I mean, the other person I think of here is, are the Confu or the group I think of are the Confucians. Mm -hmm. And so maybe this would be a good segue into the morality of grief, because one way to think about this is that I think what you just said about the contrast between, say, you know, I think you were thinking of more of the Stoics versus Aristotle in a certain way. Yeah. But it's, there's a very similar thing with the Taoists versus the Confucians. And the Confucians would probably agree with pretty much everything you said about we're, we're social beings. We have these relationships. And if we want to have a plausible account of our well-being, for example, and living well, it's it, that's going to play a big role. One way to think about the Confucian defense of grieving in response to say Taoist or Moist criticisms is that they would they would endorse that and then they would say yeah so then when it comes to the ethics of grieving uh what you need to do is you need to pay respect to people who played this foundational role in your practical identity I think mm -hmm. putting it in your terminology so they yeah. might think well there's a pressure that you should grieve so there's this question of the the, the potential value that they might want to take on board what you said about self-knowledge. They don't have that. I think that would be good. But then they might say when it comes to ethics, you ought to grieve for these people precisely because of the role they played in your in founding your practical identity and supporting your projects and all these other things. So I thought I would maybe shift to, you know, what you think about that and then get into maybe your your more Kantian uh, argument about the morality of grieving. Right. So uh I do think that the Confucians and I are, are probably operating from uh, um, a playbook that's fairly similar uh, on these matters. Um, I guess the question that would arise in my mind is when, say, a Confucian says that we ought, you know, to grieve these individuals in whom we have invested our practical identity, you know, what's the source of that ought? And, you know, supposing that we don't do it, you know, who's wronged? You know, what, what's the sort of the nature of the wrong? Um, you know, uh, one important uh, objective for me was to try to articulate a view of the nature of grief that is uh, neutral between uh, belief systems in which uh, those we grieve survive death and belief systems in which those we grieve do not. Um, and I think one of the problems that uh, besets philosophers and psychologists and others who, who study this is sometimes assumptions are made, right, about uh, the belief system of, of the grieving person um, that influence what people say about grief and, and the influences sort of go unnoticed. But I think my own account, the practical identity account, um, can make sense both of uh, grief when uh, the bereaved individual believes that the person for whom they're grieving is dead full stop, that is to say they no longer exist, this is the cessation of their existence, but also grief in the case where uh, the bereaved individual believes that the deceased continues to exist in something like a personal form, an afterlife, immortality, call it what you will. Um, now, you know, if there is uh, an afterlife and uh, those for whom we grieve uh, occupy it, then, you know, the question of to whom we, we owe this grief 
well, one possible answer is them, right? You know, we owe it to the deceased. Uh, they're, they're still, they still exist. Uh, they just don't exist among us. And that's a possibility, right? That the failure to acknowledge them could, be, I suppose, be, uh, you know, viewed as a sort of an insult or an act of disrespect or uh, something like that. Um, alternatively, right, uh, one might think that one owes perhaps not grieving, but at least mourning to other living people. I mean, I do think that there's a way in which mourning, the sort of rituals and practices that um, grief often get rise to, that there are kind of ethical prerogatives associated with that, that it's an important way for people to um, acknowledge one another's grief, for one thing, a way of building perhaps, um, you know, relations of kinship and solidarity, uh, commiseration. Uh, so I think mourning has all sorts of, you know, uh, ethically desirable functions. But if you thought that the, uh, uh, the death of the deceased does represent the cessation of their existence, then I think it's a trickier question exactly, you know, to whom we owe this grieving, right? Um, you know, I, I, in my book, I, I, I sort of express some skepticism that I think we owe grief to the deceased. So I have to say that having uh, rethought this matter, I wonder if uh, I may have, have overstated the case for that. So. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, and that, though, that's, one thing I really like about that is that you're you're setting out how your approach you're trying to give an account that is neutral on lots of other background metaphysical commitments yeah. uh, like like uh, the afterlife. And so I think you're right that if someone were to defend, say, a more Confucian approach, they might have to be upfront about it being a more of a sort of parochial account in a certain you know yeah. or, or, or having more contentious uh, work built into it. Um, yeah, I, the next thing is that I thought it was really interesting that you suggested in that chapter that there might be a, a duty, a self-regarding duty to grieve mm -hmm. that would be sort of fitting in in a very, I think, surprising way with a Kantian approach to thinking about ethics. Yeah. So that maybe maybe that would be a good next next thing to introduce. Sure. Well, I think one of the distinguishing features of uh, Kantian approaches to ethics is the thesis that we have uh, duties to ourselves, right? That there are duties that are self-regarding, duties which if we fail to fulfill them, we wrong ourselves. Um, and Kant seemed to have thought that this was a duty that's sort of rooted in uh, a larger duty of uh, perfecting our moral character, right? That we have to know ourselves in order to know uh, what motivates our choices and actions, whether we're uh, making progress toward being a virtuous person or whether we're sort of backsliding into vice, you know, what our various sorts of, you know, personal weaknesses are that tempt us to, to um, act immorally. Um, but that's not where I want to locate the duty to grieve. I, I want to argue that the duty to grieve rests on the good of grief that we were discussing a few minutes ago, namely this kind of practical self-knowledge. So, um, the book didn't really afford me the chance to to say everything that I might want to say about this matter, and I'm, and I'm still really thinking it through. But I do think that when we um, don't really understand or grasp our own practical identities and we don't really um, endorse them fully or uh, we live with practical identities that are in some sense rooted in um, realities that have been superseded, right? then I think we're not living with ourselves in a way that is transparent and truthful and honest, right? So, you know, we can all imagine, I think, a, a, a sort of instance of, of grief that we would think of as, as maybe a kind of um, manifestation of a kind of insanity, right? So, you know, suppose that a, a person's uh, spouse uh, dies and, uh, you know, they, they uh, 
still sort of believe, right, that the, that the spouse is with them and they don't adapt their lives accordingly, right? Uh, they still sort of go through the motions of, you know, all the daily rituals they had with the spouse before, right? I think a lot of us would say, well, you know, this person has sort of lost their rational bearings on the world. I think that's true, but I think they've also lost their rational bearings on themselves, right? Their situation in the world and their uh, grasp of it um, doesn't reflect, well, the reality that, you know, is, right, uh, that this person has died and they're sort of trying to live as if this is not true. So I think that, you know, insofar as we want to be beings that, um, you know, act for good reasons, that want to be beings that are transparent to ourselves, rationally transparent to ourselves, um, we have a kind of duty of uh, self-knowledge to grieve um, so as to acquire, I think, the sort of self-knowledge that, that grief can afford us. And in doing that, we are... Um, living, I suppose, in the whole truth, right, of ourselves and the world that we're operating in. It's, you know, it's just, uh, I think in its absence, there's, there's the risk that um, we will, uh, our, our identities and our own sense of ourselves, again, as beings that, that want to be rationally transparent, will be rooted in, in a past that no longer exists. Yeah, that's, so that's, I, no, and I'm, I'm excited to, to hear, you know, if you keep working on this and I, that, cause I was struck by when I read it and you just emphasized this, the way this is different than Kant's focus on, so I mean, Kant, you seem, you know, at least superficially, you have a pretty stark contrast between uh, morality and well-being. And it looks like, uh, you know, the, the duty for self-knowledge is more tightly connected to what will advance our moral character or our, our being mm -hmm. more moral. This this is definitely a different, taking things in a different direction. The other thing that comes to mind when you were talking about that was, and and not, not a sort of, there can be a failure to be honest with yourself and uh, attempt to have a truthful understanding of the situation and yourself you're in. Mm -hmm. And so one you know, interesting aspect of that, I thought, are these uh, chat bots that you mentioned at one point, and other people have written about this, that yeah. as technology advances, people can now create chat bots uh, by feeding their old text messages or voice messages into an AI, and you can build up uh, alert, through a learning algorithm, an AI that will imitate the person who's dead. And so mm -hmm. some viewers, and probably you've seen, there's a Black Mirror episode about this, uh, involving actually then having an Android, and but I, I'm curious what you think about uh, that that phenomenon of people trying to recreate or hold on to uh, someone who's gone through creating a replica. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I class on this, and students often find this unsettling, but then often we're not clear on whether there's something problematic about it. So I'm curious, just you know, what you think about that case, maybe in relation to what you said or not. Well, I guess I think two things. The first thing I think is that people should read Patrick Stokes's very good book, Digital Souls, which is sort of all about this uh, sort of uh, digital relationship to the dead. And, and he has a much more thorough uh, discussion than, than we could have here, but it's a, it's a very fine book and I recommend it highly. But the second thing is, you know, on the one hand, part of my reaction to this is to not get too worked up about it, right? These sort of chat bots or, you know, uh, I guess uh, it was uh, uh, Kim Kardashian who got a hologram of her, uh, of her father for, as a birthday present. Um, and part of me doesn't want to get too worked up about this because I think one of the things that has, al has always been part of grieving is, you know, imagining the deceased, 
right? And imagining the deceased not only when they were alive, but even sort of imagining the deceased as their presence. So you think about some of the um, techniques that are recommended for those who seek uh, mental health uh, assistance, right, for grief. A lot of these are uh, exercises in which um, the bereaved person is invited to you know, interact, I'm, I'm air quoting interact there for our, for our listeners, you know, interact with the deceased in imaginative sort of ways, right? You, you write a letter or keep a journal where you talk to them or, you know, in some therapeutic settings, there might actually be role playing, right? Where, you know, the bereaved person, uh, you know, plays the deceased or, or in the therapist plays the bereaved or vice versa. And part of me wants to just say, this is just a sort of, you know, slick, high-tech 21st, uh, 21st century version of that, you know? Um, and it's just sort of, you know, letting our technologies um, do a bit of the, the imagining for us, right? And I suppose if you get from these, uh, from these AI algorithms, you know, greater veracity, right? That you're really interacting with what the person, uh, you know, would have been like, then, you know, I kind of want to say, well, what's the harm? I guess that the harm comes in right when um, this might stand in the way of the sort of transition, right, that we will hope people will undertake when they grieve to, in my terms, having a relationship with the person qua deceased, right? Um, if there's any sort of sense of them interacting with this hologram or with the chat bot in such a way that they are kind of believing, you know, the person is still alive or something like that, um, then I suppose that, you know, we would have reason to worry. But it, I guess to me this, you know, whether that's possible is like an empirical question, you know, and it, it, we'd have to like study how people interact with these things. Um, you know, are they just a sort of, you know, souped up surrogate for familiar imaginative engagements with the deceased? Or are they, you know, sort of attempts to bring them back to life in some, in some literal sense? Um, my guess is for most people, they're not going to undergo that confusion. Right, they're not going to sort of be deluded into thinking that they're you know, interacting with the deceased, and this is not going to stymie right the, the progress of, of their own grief. But on the other hand, I would admit, you know, it's certainly you know it's conceivable that 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 that, that might happen. Uh, I mentioned Patrick Stokes's book, and I think um, one of the interesting themes in his book is the notion that um, these particular technologies might trouble us in part because they make the dead seem too available to us. Right, there's a way in which um, there's a kind of denial, right, uh, or, or apparent denial of, of their full deadness, right, because, you know, the subjectivity behind uh, the chatbot is not, you know, a human subjectivity, right? The, the, the subjectivity behind the, the Kardashian hologram is, is not, you know, Kardashian subjectivity. So I think, you know, sort of morally, we might sort of worry whether this is an attempt to uh, uh, you know, trick ourselves, or uh, you know, about the status of the dead, or um, um, you know, try to keep the dead sort of ready to hand for our purposes. And, and if you think that the dead can be wronged or disrespected, then you might be worried about this on more, uh, I suppose, moral grounds. Yeah, that's it. another thing. Is that I was thinking about when you mentioned go back to something you said you know, earlier in your response about accuracy. I was thinking on your view. One virtue of this might be if you get it, if you just feed all your text, say, from someone that you loved into this AI and it starts responding, the AI might very well do things that will remind you of features of your lost one that you that annoyed you. <laughs> and so I think, you know, in a way, you might think on your, you know, based on your view, that could be a good thing because yes. one thing we might do when people are gone is we do, we're reluctant to admit to ourselves 
yeah. the ambivalences we had about them. Uh, and so, you know, I think that, 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 that's interesting. And then, you know, of course, on the other side of it, if you think the person is still around, you might wonder whether they would object to you spending your time thinking about their negative characteristics after they're gone. So, but, but yeah, no, I hadn't thought about uh, that. You're right. That it's, and this gets at maybe it's it, it's going to be case by case, obviously. That's no surprise. Yeah. And then yeah. it might be a sort of double-edged sword, right? I think yeah. so. I think so. And um, in terms of, of grief being, as I, as I defend it, right, an opportunity for self-knowledge, I think it's a good thing if our representations of the deceased are... Um, you know, more veridical to them, because otherwise there's perhaps the danger that, you know, in trying to uh, incorporate their deaths into our practical identities, we are, uh, you know, idealizing them or, you know, mem uh, remembering them only in a very sort of selective kind of way, right? Um, and, you know, uh, the fact that people undergo these very sort of tricky emotions in, gr in grief, right? Things like guilt, right? That seems to require you know, thinking about, hmm, you know, why would I feel guilty, you know, uh, about about something that might have transpired between us? Or, you know, why would I feel angry? I think one of the things that's really remarkable about grief, and this goes back in some ways to, to some of the issues we were raising about the Stoics and, and you know, versus Aristotle and, and where I sit on that uh, continuum, is, you know, I think people are surprised by grief, right? It's not a predictable sort of thing, right? We, you know, there's all these emotions that we undergo that, you know, I think antecedent to it, you know, no, people don't anticipate. Um, you know, one of the few grief memoirs by a philosophically minded person is C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. And one of the things that you notice in the very first pages of this memoir is this guy was completely unprepared, right, for various of the emotions that he had in, in his grieving, right? He expected, he said, to be sad. He didn't expect fear. He didn't expect this sort of strange sense of being disoriented or, or feeling like his world, even his body is strange and foreign to him. So one of the things that I think is so interesting about grief is it is this sort of uh, uh, exercise by our psyches where it sort of dumps all this emotional data, you know, sort of emotional data dump where all this stuff comes out, much of which we don't anticipate prior to its occurring. So I think it's a very, that, that I uh, lend support, right, to my suggestion that it is a really powerful opportunity for self-knowledge because that sort of stuff doesn't seem to come out otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, no, that's... That's, uh, I think, yeah, and that's a strong point in favor of your view, definitely. Um, you know, one thing I thought, so we're, we're near the end, I thought one thing I do now is you had mentioned when we talked before the podcast that there are other books in grief in, in the works, and there are other, other people who've been writing on this. So I thought I'd be interested just to hear you say, you know, what, what topics about grief either in, in your book do you think are contentious? And other people working on this are likely to to sort of engage with, uh, and or are there top other topics in grief, and maybe some pointers to other things people could read if they're interested in sort of seeing the, sure. the developing debate about this. Well, as you know, as we've discussed, it's a topic that I think was pretty neglected throughout the history of philosophy. But you know, people are all of a sudden really interested in. The moral psychology of lots of particular emotions, you know, shame, envy, anxiety, anger, all of these are getting uh, book-length treatments by philosophers these days. So I'm certainly not alone in writing about it. Um, I think there's a number of people who, who are writing very interesting uh, work about it right now. Uh, Ashley Atkins is somebody who's writing some very interesting work about um, uh, sort of uh, grief and, and, and somebody's like the politics of grief, right? Sort of the ways in which 
um, you know, the representation of, of uh, certain bodies in the public sphere uh, is a way of uh, shaping uh, grief and shaping sociopolitical attitudes. Uh, one of her articles concerns um, the uh, decision on the part of the mother of, of Emmett Till, the young man who was uh, killed in the South in the 1950s, young black man, uh, to allow his uh, mutilated body to be, to be displayed to the world, which is a very political act. Um, one thing I'd like to get into, but haven't really said much about yet, is is that whole area, right? The politics of grief, right? Um, you know, uh, uh, grief can uh, is is in most cases for most people, you know, private in the sense that you know your family members, your friends, et cetera, grieve you. Your your death doesn't have this sort of large scale public significance, but sometimes it does. And um, you know, there's an interesting question, you know, what the social function of of grieving is, whether it can have a kind of political efficacy in, in making the world, uh, you know, a more just place. Um, you know, I think about um, uh, certain acts of memorialization that I think change social attitudes about particular phenomena. Two that come to mind are um, the Vietnam War Memorial in the United States, which I think had a lot of, uh, you know, impact on how people thought about that particular conflict, which was, of course, you know, a very divisive conflict, you know, in the 1960s and 70s. Another one is the AIDS quilt that was uh, started in the 1980s, which uh, I think has had, you know, a lot of very salutary effects about you know, on how people think about the AIDS crisis and, and you know, the, those who died from it. So the politics of grief is one area that I think is, um, you know, it's been heavily uh, studied by people outside philosophy, but I'd like to see more philosophers get into it. Um, on the psychological side, um, you know, uh, Matthew Ratcliffe at, at York University has um, been involved with a with a, a grant-funded project for several years, um, investigating different aspects of the psychology of grief from a philosophical point of view. And Matthew's techniques and concerns are um, you know, sort of phenomenological, I guess, I guess uh, philosophers would say. And Matthew and I, I think, um, agree on, on a number of issues, though we part ways on certain things such as the, uh, the, the object of grief, um, and so I would invite people to read um, some of his work. He, he has a, uh, and his team have a paper coming out next year that um, you know, takes issue a little bit with uh, some of the things that I say about the uh, uh, the object of grief. Um, but I think you know the politics of grief, the psychology of it, um, and I think you know one question that that I want to go back to, in part because I think I may have um, uh, landed actually on the wrong position, is is sort of the interpersonal morality of grieving, whether we really do owe our loved ones. Um, you know, our grief, because I think there might be a respect in which uh, not grieving or grieving in a way that's sort of half-hearted or um, less than complete, less than a full embrace of grief might amount to a kind of failure in our duties of fidelity to them, right? That we're not sort of living with them in their realities. So, you know, I think about romantic relationships, uh, long-term romantic relationships. I do think we have a sort of duty to, you know, live with our, uh, um, our romantic partners on the terms set by who they are, right? To adapt to their changing attitudes, to adapt to their changing, you know, ambitions, preferences, um, et cetera. And I suppose one of the biggest changes is, well, their death. <laughs> so <laughs> I wonder if we might in the end owe it to our, our, our partners to uh, grieve them so as to, in a way, kind of honor the fact of their death, um, which is not really an idea I think I had thought about enough in, in writing this book. But I think it's a very lively area, and um, you know the fact of of the uh, the COVID pandemic has sadly made it a bit more 
um, acute as a topic, but I think it was always um, a significant topic. And it's really gratifying, I think, for, for all of this work to kind of be, um, you know, blossoming in different places all at once. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Michael. Uh, so again, the book is Grief, A Philosophic Guide, and it's literally just out with Princeton University <laughs> Press. Yeah. Um, I'll end just by saying if you're if you're still listening at this point, uh, it's an accessible book. So I think non-philosophers uh, could find this very interesting or undergrads, grads, all, all different groups. So I, I wanted to commend you in part just on writing a well-written book okay. that was uh, accessible like that, but gets at these deep philosophical questions too. So Michael, thanks so much for coming on. Glad to have done it. I appreciate the invitation.